Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence, and today I have Jim Freeman. He's the director of the Social Movement Support Lab at the University of Denver. He also happens to be the author of Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jim. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Yes, so congrats on your book. I understand it launched very recently. And Rich Thanks to Racism seems very timely right now as our nation is confronting racism really front and center. So who is out here making money off of racism? Well, it's actually a surprising number of people, unfortunately, Adrian. You know, you know, I, I agree. I think it's a really exciting time right now that, you know, more and more people are recognizing the urgency. To really dismantle systemic racism once and for all. But I wrote it because unfortunately, there's very little understanding of what and who stands in the way. Because when we think about sort of who's on the other side of this fight, we usually think about the alt right and those kinds of folks. Um, but that's not who's passed all these laws that are responsible for systemic racism. They're not the ones doing the heavy lifting and defending and even expanding these policies. So we really have to recognize that the biggest reason that systemic racism persists today is that for a lot of large corporations and Wall Street banks, it is enormously profitable. So we actually have racism profiteers in this country, ultra wealthy people who put their resources to work in defending or expanding racial inequities in ways that result in greater economic or political power for themselves. And they oftentimes they do it in secret. So, so we don't even know what's going on. And so in other words, these are people who profit from real devastating harm that they cause in black and brown communities. And, and I've been working alongside these communities for, for nearly 20 years. And I've seen up close with this strategic racism, as I call it, what it looks like. And it really is truly devastating for millions of families. Yes, so in your book, you do a groundbreaking examination of this strategic racism. What does that term mean? Yeah, I mean, what what it means really is, you know, it for me systemic racism isn't descriptive enough for what's going on because that's you know it it seems sort of vague and amorphous uh, when in reality like what they're actually doing is putting their resources to work um, in in defending and expanding systemic racism in ways that benefit themselves. So what this looks like in practice is that. They make huge investments in think tanks and advocacy organizations and media outlets that have been instrumental in dramatically expanding, for example, the role and size of police departments within communities of color and creating what is now the largest incarcerated population in the world. They use their resources to target undocumented immigrants with a barrage of cruel and discriminatory policies. And in education, their investments in really dismantling public school systems in favor of charter schools and school vouchers have inflicted massive harm within black and brown communities. And all of those dynamics, when you break them down, are profoundly profitable for the ultra wealthy. And you say you've been in this kind of this field for 20 years. And so I'm sure there's a lot that you have seen. But what was the most eye opening aspect of studying and reporting on and just sharing and enlightening about strategic racism as you were writing this book? Well, you know, I have to admit that for most of my career, I had no idea this, that this was even going on. You know, I sort of stumbled onto it. You know, I've been working for many years, working on issues of, of systemic racism. And, and for most of that time, I honestly believe that our enemy, that our opposition was ignorance. In other words, I believe that all we had to do was educate enough people on the realities of systemic racism and how to address them. And that would be enough. And if I'd only been working in one geographic area, I would probably still believe that. 
But because I was working across many cities and many states, and I began to see patterns in the opposition that we were facing. You know, the same policies and the same organizations kept popping up, whether I was in Tallahassee, Florida, or Springfield, Illinois, or, or Denver. And so I got curious and I started digging into the people and organizations that were driving these efforts. And I found that I kept running into the same small group of names. And, and that's when I sort of realized that while the communities I was working with were fighting back against racial inequities, in many cases, they were fighting for their very lives. These billionaires and multimillionaires were actively opposing their efforts. So they were in effect promoting the perpetuation of racial injustice. So I kept pulling that thread and following the money. And what I learned was, you know, this was billions of dollars being pooled together and invested strategically around a particular agenda that was ravaging low-income, low-income communities of color in particular. Yet because of how effectively their efforts had been hidden or at least disguised, virtually no one seemed to know what they were up to. Now, I understand that you say no one seemed to know, um, but I, I find that most people of color seem to know. They understand that racism is something that a lot of people intentionally invest in, that this isn't a matter of having to give people the benefit of the doubt. No, people know, a lot of them know what they're doing. Um, I, I guess my I guess my question is, I guess why not have seen that it was intentional before that that they were leveraging something. What made you not see that? Yeah, you know, I, I often ask myself that question because people would say that, um, and I, I guess I just didn't get it. You know, maybe I wanted to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, for example, when you know when in the school in the education sector when they would invest in, um, we see these investments in charter schools, for example, in school vouchers. I would believe that the purpose of that. Was really to, you know, address um, education inequities, but I didn't realize how deep um, the the profit motive actually ran through that process, and what the ultimate agenda was for at least a lot of people who are investing in this area was to dismantle those systems. And so for me, it was, you know, I was focused more on ideology um, and and less on the the real harm that was being caused. And the agenda that was driving it, I didn't understand the the level of greed that was permeating all of these policies because they were really dressed up in you know very strong public relations campaigns. And there's you know really good talking points and messengers who are saying that you know there's good reasons for these things. Um, and you know I guess I took that at face value and I was really ignorant and naive. Um, you know, and I think that's you know we've all been there at some point in time, but I think it's. Um, you know, hopefully, as people branch out across uh, kind of different groups and different people, and start listening and tapping into their viewpoints and their ideologies, it helps open others' eyes. Because as we all know, racism is definitely worldwide, uh, but it seems that there's very unique American aspect to it when it comes to racism and how it's leveraged. Is there anything in particular that you found that you thought is maybe unique to the American way? Yeah, like you say, I mean, these dynamics aren't unique to us, but I think the ultra wealthy in this country have weaponized systemic racism more effectively than anyone else, which is why we have such extreme anti immigrant policies, which is why we have the largest incarcerated population in the world, which is why we have a public school system that is really being systematically dismantled, starting with black and brown communities. So, you know, the there's 
um, a long history of these dynamics in this country. But one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to show people that this is not just a part of our history. It's a part of our present. This is something happening um, very actively right now. And so we really do need more people to come to the realization of what is driving systemic racism and why we can't seem to get beyond it. Yes, it's definitely ever present without question. I think a lot of people ask themselves the question though, what fuels racism? Is it racism in its own or is it greed? And I think we've seen over the last few years where people continue to make decisions that are economically detrimental for them. But because it feeds that internal ego when it comes to racism, at least it makes me think that racism and the feelings that come from it are the true driver. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think you know the there's there's certainly a large element of that. Um, but we, you know, I, I think we also have to recognize where those feelings, where those ideas that we latch onto are coming from, right? So take the example of of George Floyd, right? Very much in the news right now, and very much in a lot of our thoughts. And you know, we were told over and over again that this was the wake up call for the nation, but like so many times before, we didn't actually wake up. Right, we didn't actually come together around addressing this vastly oversized and violent criminal justice system that's being used within Black and Brown communities as a really a catch-all solution for a huge variety of public health and public safety issues. Now, let's talk about why we didn't do it. Because you have organizations like Alec who've invested um, for 30 years into passing these mass criminalization policies. You have super wealthy individuals like the Koch brothers who have been pouring tens of millions of dollars into the various right-wing think tanks that have been pushing this agenda. You have one of those think tanks, the Heritage Foundation, after the uprising against systemic racism last summer, what they decided to do was launch a back the blue police pledge that has been signed by 200 members of Congress. And one of those members of Congress, Tom Cotton, he tweets out last week that in the US we have a major under-incarceration problem. So, you know, I think that's a huge part of what's driving modern day systemic racism. And the result is we implement these public policies that we know will inflict needless harm on large groups of people of color, that we know will perpetuate these racial inequities, that we know will lead to people being killed. And then when that harm becomes apparent, we fail to address it appropriately in significant part because it's economically beneficial for the ultra wealthy not to. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Jim Freeman, director of the Social Movement Support Lab at the University of Denver and author of Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. Thank you so much for joining us, Jim. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Welcome in to TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence. And now I welcome in Roshni Nedengadi. She's the Democratic pollster and partner at HIT Strategies. Welcome in, Roshni. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. And I know that you're one of the leading Asian American women of color pollsters tracking the AAPI, that's Asian American Pacific Islander electorate. And you can speak to the concerns and attitudes of the AAPI community right now as far as it concerns anti-Asian discrimination. So what have you found recently with the rise in events and violence against the AAPI community? 
Yes, my my firm Hit Strategies is a firm that's led by young people of color, and we really want to center the voices of the communities that we advocate for. So we partnered with Michigan Asian American Progressives to do a comprehensive survey of Asian Americans and Middle Easterners in Michigan just this this last winter. We came out of the field with it in February. And we found that over the last year in Michigan itself, almost 40% of Asian Americans that live in Michigan either have personally experienced racism or know someone who has experienced racism as a result of the coronavirus. Wow, that is that is incredible. Particularly the rise nationally seems to be also very significant where I believe as a report is that there's been a 150% increase in hate crimes and violence against the AAPI community. And the interesting part about that is that we had a 150% increase in violence against the AAPI community, but then hate crimes fell overall 7% in 2020. So it essentially shows that uh, that difference there and the fact that there is a great disparity and people are targeting the Asian American Pacific Islander community. So what do you think needs to be done to tackle this? That's a great question. And you know, I think the data plays it out overall nationally as well too, as you were saying, almost 30% of Asian Americans nationwide say that they face more discrimination over the last year. And I think the Senate actually took a very good first step yesterday in passing the anti-Asian hate crimes bill. But there's certainly more to be done. If you look at the people who are experiencing these hate crimes and rise in Incidents of hate over the last few over the last year itself, women are experiencing at higher levels, but also the younger generation is experiencing these incidents of hate at much higher levels. Partly because we're online all the time, where where such hate speech is totally unregulated. Like as an Asian woman myself, I almost encounter racist commentary online every day. So I think more needs to be done in that arena to combat hate speech online. And what do you think could be done to make this change? As you mentioned, the Senate had recently passed the bill, which is great in terms of first steps. But what do you foresee as the next step? Well, hopefully it passes in the House as well and then is signed into law. But as far as the next step, it would be great to see some legislation on online hate speech, which would benefit, again, not only the Asian community, but all people of color and women online as well. Okay, and that could make some significant changes in terms of getting people more involved so that they can curb this hate. And as I understand it, it's a direct product largely of a lot of the propaganda that started with the coronavirus and the pandemic. So I guess what kind of grassroots efforts are you involved in at Hit Strategies? That's a great question, and we like to get involved with communities on the ground who are doing the hard work, making sure that they are reaching out to voters about elections that are coming up and the importance of the upcoming elections. Michigan Asian American Progressives, for example, in Michigan is very concerned about the 2022 elections. If we look back at 2020, Asian American vote in Michigan increased by 93 
53% over 2016. And that's because these voters were experiencing, as we've talked about, this really existential threat between you know, their lives being threatened by coronavirus, but also the racism and discrimination that they had experienced because of it. So they turned out in vast numbers in 2020 to combat this gross mishandling of coronavirus, but also this racism and discrimination that they had been experiencing. We're very involved this year in joining with groups like Michigan Asian American Progressives to make sure that we keep that momentum going. Make sure that there are organizations on the ground talking to these newly activated voters to make sure that they're showing up in 2022 and 2024 as well. Yes, and that would be very powerful as we saw how the rally turnout in Georgia really swung things in the favor of the left. And so to have that hopefully on a national level would be fantastic. So in terms of in addition to kind of rallying people and getting them together, what else are you doing particularly as it concerns maybe building up candidates who are representative of the Asian American community? Yes, it's so important to get more representation in Congress, but it's also going to be so important thinking about 2022. Some of our most important swing districts that that we need to retain, the progressives need to make sure that they hold on to in 2022, have large Asian American populations. So making sure that we're running the right progressive candidates that are speaking to their voters' issues, making sure that they are addressing the coronavirus crisis, making sure that they're addressing healthcare concerns, economic concerns, and of course, racism and discrimination, which is a top three to four issue among AAPI groups nationwide, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what age, and no matter what gender. Yes, and are there any particular candidates that you are working with or that you see kind of making a run for it in the next few election cycles? Um, not not necessarily any particular candidates making a run for it, but I think one that we should be we should have our eyes on is certainly Senator Warnock in Georgia, who who won the won the Senate runoff. You know by a very small margin in Georgia, due in no small part to people of color, black voters and Asian voters in Georgia itself. And one of the things that he is advocating for right now is making sure that we're keeping restricting qualified immunity in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. So he's really listening to these AAPI voters who are standing against racism and discrimination, not only AAPI voters, but voters across the board who are standing against racism racism and discrimination and saying, you know, we need to do something about this. So it's going to be crucial to maintain the level of turnout among Asian voters there in the state of Georgia. And, and you know, Republicans in Georgia are doing everything they can right now to, to make sure that people of color aren't going to turn out at the same level. So that, that's a race that we're certainly focusing on, making sure that we maintain the same, same level of turnout there as we did in 2020. Yes, and that'd be a very powerful thing. The good thing, hopefully, is to put individuals in elected office who not only earn and win the vote, but maintain it by continuing to listen to their constituents, including those in the AAPI community. So we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you more and about what you are involved in. Is there anything specific that you are excited about in 2021? 
I am really excited about young voters. Hit Strategies has been tracking young voters over the last year in a, in a bi-monthly poll that we call Future Track. And we've been watching the trends of young voters and how they're reacting to current events and, and situations on the ground. And since June of last year, when the protests around the murder of George Floyd were happening, young voters have been laser focused on this, this racism and discrimination piece that we've been talking about. They really, young voters, regardless of their, regardless of their race, Regardless of whether they're Gen Z or millennials, really rate racism and discrimination as a key issue to them. And so watching these young voters and what they're doing and how we're activating them, how how progressive candidates are activating them is really interesting to me. Yes, and it will be very interesting moving forward as I think that a lot of people are invested in change, no matter necessarily what age group they are in, but definitely to see younger demographics get involved and advocate for their rights is a very powerful thing. So can you tell us where can people find more information about hit strategies and the incredible work that you all are doing to get more voters out there, young, old, AAPI and other? Uh, well, we can be found online at www.hitstrat.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Roshni Nedengadi, and we're also on Twitter at Hitstrat. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Roshni Nedengadi, Democratic pollster and partner at Hit Strategies. Thanks again. Thank you.